Any Batman fans here? Huh? I grew up with Batman. Batman, the, the shows that were, uh, you know, you probably watched them on Nick at Night or one of those shows. Fantastic shows. There are three words you should have learned from Batman. What are they? Pow. What's the next one? Bam. Very good. And wham. Right? Those are the three words that it, it, in the show, when Batman would get in a fight, you'd see him hit somebody and then one of those words would go there. And they're, they're kind of progressing. So pow is basically any time Batman's in a fight. But bam means that, I mean, he just sends somebody flying, so it's a much bigger deal. But then, wham, was game over, all over. If you got a Bible, open it up to Luke 11. Uh, <laughs> don't try that kind of transition at the dinner table. You might just hurt somebody. Uh, <laughs> we're in a series right now within the Gospel of Luke, as Tim just mentioned, which we're calling Jesus versus Religion. And we're going to see pow, bam, wham, two different times. We saw it last week What uh, in round one of this three-round fight we're going to go through here and what we call the subtle poison of religion. So I'm just going to, just kind of, I need to give you a bit of a recap. Otherwise, this passage this week won't even make any sense. A lot of people, as they... Uh, communicate on this passage either in writings or in sermons or whatever. It's one passage, but it was way too much for us to cover in one week. So let me just kind of walk you through it. Jesus has just gotten done teaching on prayer to his disciples, and then in Luke chapter 11, and then he begins this thing where he's getting criticism from others, and what he, they say, give us a sign if you're really a big shot, and he says, the only sign you're going to get is a sign of Jonah. Three days in the whale, three days of son of man. And, and so when, that, when he's done speaking, a guy, a Pharisee, invites him in to eat with him. Okay, and so he's going to have a meal with this guy. Now, the Pharisees were the religious rulers of the day. They were the ones that held the churches, and it wasn't a church back then, but the Jewish people held their morality and was a judge of others who didn't hold the right kind of morality. Okay, so then... They're getting ready for lunch or, or dinner or whatever it is, and the Pharisee goes through and he washes his hands. Now, it's not a washing like you and I would do. It's a ceremonially, ceremonial pouring of the hands. And remember, we went into this last week. It's done a certain way. It has to be done a certain way. And what it is, a way of saying, my hands have gotten sinful from being out in the world, and I need to get myself clean of them. This is nowhere found in the Bible. The Pharisees uh, and those other ones, we'll meet them today, made this up. And they did that, but Jesus walks right on by the, the, the basin there and just goes and sits down, kicks back at the table. And the Pharisee's surprised. He's shocked by that. And so Jesus responds to what he's thinking in his head, and he says, listen, you Pharisees, you leaders, guess what? You religious re leaders of the day, guess what? Outside, dude, you look really good. You guys look really good. But inside, what's going on inside? Greed and wickedness uses a cup as an analogy, you know, like a cup on the outside. I had a coffee cup this morning. Dude, I'm serious. I went to pick it up. I don't know who used it and didn't. <laughs> it was a good eighth of an inch of extreme science project. <laughs> and it took me five minutes of hot water to get it down to where I could crunch on it. When I, no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it was nasty. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, you like this coffee cup. It's actually my favorite coffee cup. Uh, and, and it looks really great on the outside, but inside, you got mold going on, right? So then he gives three woes to those. And these are pow, bam, and then wham. Pow is, dude, you give a tenth of everything. Well, good for you. In fact, even your garden herbs, the basil you made out there, you dry it, you put it on a digital scale, you pick a razor blade and get exactly down to the hundredth of an ounce, the right amount of mint that you're going to bring to the temple and give to God. Somehow God wants basil. I don't know. But, okay, so, but he says, but guess what? You've neglected love and justice. Not good. Second, bam. He says, you love the most important seats. You love when people greet you and, and they come to you, oh, rabbi. And, they, and you're just like, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a big deal, right? You love that. But the wham of all of them is this one. 
Woe to you because you, light, you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. In that culture, at that time, given the Old Testament, that there were ways to make yourself ceremonially unclean. And you needed to go through a, some type of ritual in order to be uh, clean so you could go into the temple. One of those things was touching a dead body or walking over a grave. Jesus says, guess what? You guys, you guys are unmarked graves. People just get around you and they get unclean. Not clean by being around you, unclean. In other words, you guys are spiritual typhoid Marys. Everybody else is getting sick. You're just making them sick. But they come to you because they think you're the, the picture of health and you're not. Inside you are not. So then we did this whole thing where we freeze-framed last week. And we said, what, what's actually going on in the mind of that Pharisee at that moment when he's surprised, he's shocked that Jesus doesn't go through this tradition. And what we said, what, the, what made the Pharisee better in his own eyes, so he said, I'm better than this, than Jesus was, was his morality or, or, or better yet, his religion, his traditions. And then he followed him and Jesus didn't. He's better than Jesus because of his religion. Now, I am actually impressed, Hope Community Church, <laughs> I did not get a single email that ripped on my use of religion last week. So uh, thank you very much, or my spam filter's getting better. I don't know which it is, but uh, because I defined it very carefully. A lot of people go, wait a minute now. Can't go picking on religion. We're in a church, right? I I understand a a little bit, but I want to give you what my definition is when I say religion, what I mean. And that's a set of beliefs and actions that when believed and performed makes a person right with God. The absence of that belief and those actions proves to a person and to everybody else that that person is not right with God and therefore is not okay in the community. Or, to state it a different way, religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The basic operating principle of the gospel is I'm accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross, that is all that's needed is the fact that I acknowledge that I bend my knee to that. I say, Lord, I'm helpless and hopeless. I need that. I take it. And then that's all that's needed. And therefore, I obey. Not the other way around. There's still, being a person who follows the gospel doesn't mean that there's not rules. It does change the nature of the rule, though. The rule is no longer an obligation. The rule now is, is a thing that we get to do. The thing, it goes from should to get to. It's a major difference. It changes everything. Everything turns upside down. We talked about the ways to respond to God. There are three ways to respond to God, one of which is just no way. I don't want anything to do with God. And you run off and you're into all kinds of immorality, right? You run from God. But the, the second way is the way where you say, I want to have God. I want to be, be around God. I want that. I want a clean life. I want to make myself clean. I'm going to do things really hard. I'm going to try really hard to please God. I want to, to follow his ways. And I want to do things right so I'm acceptable before him. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to do, be around, hang around people that do all these other bad things. I'm not going to do drugs. And I'm not going to root for the Packers. And I'm not going to, you know, all that kind of stuff. I want to stay away from that, right? <laughs> Somebody over here. Somebody over here at a Packers. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was for you, buddy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> scoreboard, I know, I know. Six and oh, uh, so what? Um, <clears throat> um, I'm Steve. What are we talking about? Yeah. Anyway, they, they, but they're, they're, there's those folks, too. And, the, and the, the surprising thing in Scripture is this. Most people are rejected. The religious people of the day, religious rules of the day, those ones who are hanging on to their own morality, saying, I'm good, I'm better than other people. God, I deserve from you. you get, they're, in fact, what Jesus uh, saves up his most angry speeches for. Wow. But those who are way number three and they want God, but they realize, guess what? I can never reach God. I, I can't reach him. I acknowledge that I'm helpless and I'm hopeless. I, I can't do it. I can't do this. Jesus, I need you. I need you and only you. In fact, many of those people come from way one. They come from way one and they say, I I don't want this lifestyle. I want to come back. Prodigal son style, I want to come. And that's a beautiful thing. We've seen that over and over at Hope. And I hope for those of us, and every one of us has a bit of this in us, but many of us has lived away. If you're a way two person that even by the time I'm done talking today, you'd realize that it's just as bad, just as wicked as way one. And you'd say, oh my gosh, just as much as if I was a heroin uh, addict, I need God. I'm a religion addict. Oh, 
God, help me. And you come to way three. That was last week. This week, round two, the danger of being right. So if you got your Bible open, let's open it up to uh, Luke 11.45. You can find it on your insert as well. Uh, we'll read through the passage. Um, we have one more round next week. It talks about the false hope that just religion can give you. This week, it's on the danger uh, of being right. Verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you built the tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So that's where we're going. Uh, oh, excuse me, one more thing. What? When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, wanting to catch him in something he might say. So that's where we're going today. How do, how do, we, uh, how do we get there? How did that happen? What's going on? These people are supposed to be like followers of God, and they're rejecting Jesus. I mean, it's just weird, right? How do we get there? So we're going to do today the same, thing we, exact, same exact thing we did last week. We're going to go through the passage. And then I'm going to pause and ask, why would, why, what happened? What's going on here? So let's just go through the passage first off. The question that this guy is asking, remember, we're at dinner. We're sitting around at dinner. And there's just a group of people sitting there. And Jesus just goes off on the Pharisees. Boom, 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 boom. And one of the guys is an expert in the law. And he says, oh, are you including us in that? That's the question. So it's stated as a, as a sentence here. But the question is, is that, are you, do you mean to say that to us? Because we're kind of taking it that way. When you say those things, do you, do you understand, Jesus, that you're insulting us? We'll, we'll get to Jesus' classic answer on that in just a second. But, but first we have to ask the question, who are these experts in the law? All right? So I don't know what kind of Bible you have open. Um, you might have the... Uh, you might have the ESV version. You might have the New American Standard or NIV or a whole bunch of different English versions. Uh, this phrase, the experts and the law, could be translated a few ways in your translation. One could be lawyer. Uh, that technically is the word, but, it, they, but they don't mean like a lawyer lawyer. Okay, they mean a certain kind of lawyer, uh, and it'll be more upon the Jewish law or those who are experts in the law or teachers of the law or Commonly, if you have a New American Standard Version, I don't know if ESV says it too, scribes was a phrase that's commonly used to describe these folks. Who were they? Okay, let me, um, we've met them a few times in Luke already. Let me show you a couple of them. Then we'll look to some uh, help historically to understand a little better what's going on. So who are they? Let's go to Luke. Luke chapter um, 5. We meet uh, these, the Pharisees and these teachers of the law, the scribes. We meet them before. Jesus has just got done uh, forgiving someone of their sins. And look at what they say. The teachers, uh, Pharisees, teachers of the law, began to thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks, what, blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Second sentence. Second sentence is good theology. You have to forgive the sin. The only one that can forgive a sin is the one who got sinned against, right? If you take a baseball bat to my window of my car, someone else can't come to you and go, hey, no big deal, I'll forgive you. It's like, yeah, hello, right? I have to be the one that says that because I'm the one that did. So that's a good statement. If it's sin against God, then God is the only one who can deal with that. So then the question then goes back to the first part. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? In other words... You're right in the first part, then why doesn't that lead you to the conclusion of the second part, which is, holy smokes, maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Whoa. But they don't go there. No way. 
because Jesus is ruffling too many feathers, so they are opposed to him. You go to chapter 6. One of their favorite hobbies was the Sabbath and what's okay on it. What the Sabbath was, was, uh, and it's the same thing, you maybe hear that phrase even now, it was on the, on the seventh day of the week, Saturday, was a day of rest. On six days, the Lord created the earth, and then he rested from his work because he was done. And so God says, I want you to have a day of remembrance, a day of rest. I've designed you that way. I want you to do that. And instead of, of having it be a thing that says, wow, thank you, that's amazing, uh, what the Pharisees did, and we'll get into this more, is they started to make rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Another Sabbath, he, Jesus, went into a synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. So just picture the scene. Jesus is teaching. There's someone sitting here whose hand is shriveled. And they're going, this is awesome. This is perfect. Because we're no, we're going to out this guy now. Because when he heals that guy, which is amazing, but he does it on a Sabbath, we're going we're gonna to get him. Says the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And it's great what happens next. It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, boom, heals the guy. <laughs> Booyah, you and your Sabbath. It's my Sabbath. I made it. Jesus, not Steve. <laughs> Luke 9. Luke 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's saying to them, uh, it's, it's the first time they're really wrestling through a Socratic way of dealing with who Jesus really is. He's just asking them questions. That Socratic method of teaching where you just ask, Jesus was a master teacher, and he says, you know, who do people say that I am? And all these crazy answers come out, and then, and then Jesus says, you know, how about you guys? Who do you say that I am? You just hear the pause, pregnant pause, just sitting there, and then Peter says, you're the Christ. You're God's Messiah. Jesus then strictly warned them not to tell us to anyone at that point in time, not yet. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, the teachers of the law. They're the ones that are going to reject him, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Do you see what's going to happen in our account here? Who's going to be Jesus' worst enemies? The elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law. That's That's amazing. So, uh, historically, what's going on there? Let me, John Nolan helps us. He wrote a helpful commentary on this. He says, the teachers of the law, that is, the scribes, the lawyers, were the antecedents, the earliest part, later to the later rabbis, and those of Pharisaic persuasion. You can see this in Luke 5, the majority were of Pharisaic persuasion. Constituted a leadership group within the Pharisaic movement. So they were Pharisees, but they were a special part of them. The teachers of the law had a significant place in the political power structure of Judea. Note their involvement alongside the chief priests in the final days in Jerusalem. So when Jesus is coming through, these people are very, very influential. The teachers of the law function both as scholars, so they're really spooky smart. They really know, and what do they know? Of the law. So they were the ones who knew the Old Testament really well. And teachers and also had a role in the administration of justice. So to say they're lawyers is, is, a, is, a, is, a, uh, is not a good representation, if that's what your version says. They're really more than that. They're, they're really the, 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 the ones that are, and I'll get to this in, in just a minute, they're the ones that are kind of making up, writing down. Uh, one, the, the quote I'll read you in just a minute says they're codifying the ways of what the Jewish people should follow. Now, the question, remember what the question is. We're at the table. What's the question? Are you including us on this? Jesus does not answer. But if he did, it'd be one word. It'd just be, yep. Right? Yep. And he just keeps going. And you, experts of the law, woe to you. He doesn't even ask. He just says, shaw, yes. And he's going to give three woes to them. Pow, bam, and wham. Pow. You load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. So what's going on? Let me go back to what I said the, that they do. What the, these uh, experts in the law, the teachers of the law, the, the scribes, what do they do? They wrote things down for the people of Israel. Let me, let me quote here from... Um, Kent Hughes, because this background is really helpful. It says, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees were the religionists, 
members of a religious party that enforce the legal code. The lawyers, scribes, are experts in the law. The three terms are interchangeable. We're the codifiers of the law, the people who built hedges around it by encrusting it with a myriads of extra regulations. Jesus' woes to the Pharisees were swipes at their hypocritical religious practices, whereas the woes that fell on the lawyers had to do with the way they abused the, the Old Testament, the Torah, God's word. The lawyers laden people with laws manufactured from the sacred text and designed to provide a protective crust for the law. Eventually, this crust became no less than 6,000 laws. A smothering incrustation. Okay, Kent Hughes likes the word crust way too much, but you get the idea. There's, there's, this, there's the, the, the scriptures, and there's these ways to live, and they put around it this huge you know, layer of 6,000 more regulations. Now, one of their favorite things was the, was the Sabbath, what you can and what you can't do on the Sabbath. And in order to simplify it, they created 39 categories. I kid you not. 39 categories, and within their categories, they got all these different rules. It is crazy. Okay, so let me just keep going here. For example, one of the 39 categories forbade the carrying of burdens on the Sabbath and hedged it with a minute prohibitions for every occasion. This section declared that anything equal to or heavier than a dried fig was a burden. So it was permissible to carry something that weighed less than a dried fig on the Sabbath. But if one inadvertently put it down and then picked it up, he would be counted as doubling the weight and thus breaking the Sabbath. It's like, oh, I dropped that. Could you pick that up and throw that at me? <laughs> ah, God, I, you know what? I told my mom I was going to bring home a dried fig, and now I can't, right? Now let me read from the actual... This, this, this book that they wrote called the Mishnah, which is all these rules. Let me read just to show you how incredible this stuff was. On the Sabbath, if a man carries a burden in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder, he is culpable. That's not okay. For this last was the manner of carrying of the sons of Korath, and that's bad. If he took it out on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or in his wallet, carried mouth downwards, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal, he is not culpable, since he has not taken it out after the fashion of them that take it out. A burden. Okay, take that, and then multiply it, you know, 5,999 other rules like that. And that's what it meant to go to church. I want to be a part of the, you know, whatever that, they would call it church, but okay, here's the rule book. Ooh, you touched it with your right hand. You got to use your elbow. On the, the dried fruit? Yeah. I don't, what? Or you can use your ear. Doink. You know, how do I pick this? I'm not supposed to work? It's more work to, okay, right? And what's, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, you just heap this stuff on people. You've created this system. That's not, that's not what it means to have a relationship with me. That's ridiculous. It just, it just becomes rules. Rules without relationship always leads to rebellion. Right? Sounds like a Baptist preacher thing, but it is. It, it's that you, you are not, I am not about rules. You've created all this stuff. Well, number two. Bam. He's saying, guess what? You, you, you scribes, you guys are a long line of rejectors of me, rejectors of the true God. He says, woe to you, you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So your great, 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 great Dan, grandpappy, he killed these prophets, and you now build tombs for the prophets. And then, and then they would have said, yeah, right. Because that, was, that wasn't good that they did that. So we're going to build a, a, a tomb for them. And we're going to put them in the tomb. And we're going to label it, right? And Jesus now says, so you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets. And you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, and he quotes something that's nowhere in the Bible. So it's either a phrase that they all would have known. Or it's a phrase that Jesus is saying the Father has said. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. What's Jesus saying here? Guess what, guys? Let me, let me think about this. You, you, 
You have all the, you, you yell at your grand, 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 grandpappy because he killed so-and-so, and that was wrong, and so you make a tomb for them, and you try to find their bones or pretend that they're the bones or whatever, you put them in there, but guess what? I just send you, I just sent you John the Baptist, Jay the B. What, what did you go, whoa, wave a big flag and say, all right, Jay the B, let's have a marching band for him. No, you persecuted him, and you're persecuting me. In fact, if you go ahead 10 chapters or so in the book we're writing right now, uh, you'll see that you're going to kill me. And then there's going to become followers after me, and you're going to treat them the same way you treated me. It says, therefore, you've got to understand something. You're going to be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel, which is in Genesis chapter 4, to the blood of Zechariah. Now, that could be the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Some people even think it's the... The, uh, the priest, Zechariah, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, uh, not many people think that, but probably is this Old Testament guy who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. You're, you're, not, on the, you're not on the backs of those who are doing right. You're the ones that are just the same as though they kill them. Now, able to Zechariah is great in English because it's A to Z, right? So you think, oh, that covers A to Z. It doesn't work that way in any other language that this would have been Aramaic or Greek. Jesus would have spoke Aramaic. It was translated into Greek. It doesn't work that way. But in, in, I mean, in, in the foreknowledge of God, he knew that it would be English and that it's A to Z. And so, anyway. Um, no, he's just saying comprehensively from the very beginning, the first murder all the way towards one of the last ones that was committed by the people of God, upon the people of God, those who were those who were innocent, so to speak, you're in that long line of history. Well, number six. Oh, I love this quote. It says, they killed the prophets. You just make sure they stay dead. Well, number six. You take away knowledge. This is the wham. This is the hardest hit that Jesus had. The other ones are left jabs. This is the right cross. This is the biggest punch Jesus is going to throw. He says, woe to you, experts law, because you have taken away the key to what? Knowledge. You yourselves are not entered that room, right? You've taken away the keys. You can't get in the room. And you hindered those who want to get in, but you've hidden the key somewhere. Whoa, that is a harsh statement. I know it's too soon, uh, but yesterday was a hard day for Gopher Nation, right? A very hard day for Gopher Nation. Uh, Carol and I, uh, we watched the first half of the game, and then we decided to go on a motorcycle ride, so we decided to drive by campus, and we hit it, boom, right at the end of the game, and we were stuck in that traffic, and it was really amazing to me how many people were wearing red. I mean, it was like sickening. Uh, it was just red everywhere, you know, and so, and they kept walking out, walking out, walking out, and we're stuck in traffic, um, and finally, they all had, you know, they all had N, you know, finally I just said, man, what does that N stand for, I yelled to a guy, you know what he said? Knowledge. <laughs> I know, I know, a scoreboard, but it was fun anyway, um, they, they, uh, look at that. No, I guess I did get a shot at Wisconsin, but it was a new state today. Went after Nebraska here, but I know. Scoreboard, I don't know, I get it. But the quote here by Jesus, what he's saying about them hiding the knowledge, which is the very thing that they think they're an expert in. They're scholars. And yet Jesus says, you're idiots. You're idiots. Is exactly, if this doesn't make you think this of, the, of this quote, I worry for you. It should make you think of Billy Madison. It has to. It has to make you think of this quote. If you know the movie, Billy Madison is in this game show, and, and the game show guy asks him a question. He gives, he gives a wrong answer. And, and the guy answers back. He says this, what you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were, uh, were you even close to anything that could be character, <laughs> that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. It, it's a great moment, if you remember the movie. And then that's where Adam Sandler, Billy Madison, just says, you could have just said, incorrect, you know. <laughs> that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Guess what? Scholars, everyone in the room is dumber because you're in the room. 
<laughs> if you don't think Jesus, if you think Jesus was just namby-pamby, this is a theological street brawl that's happening right here. This is incredible that he would say something like this, right? I dare you to go up to one of your professors and say after his lecture, you know what? Everybody in this room is dumber now because of listening to your lecture. But do not tell them where you heard to do that, okay? <laughs> so you're saying, wait now, you're saying that getting really smart about the Bible is a bad thing? Can be. Karl Barth said this, and he's a German theologian in the 1930s. He said, the Bible is like a love letter and should be read in the same way. If the letter is written in a foreign language, the lover will need to decipher it with the aid of a dictionary. But he will regard the toil of translation as an irritating delay to the reading of the letter. A necessary evil, if you will. And he will certainly not imagine that he is reading the letter while he is still translating it. You get what he's saying here? If you get a love letter, it's like, well, I happen to know Swahili. Oh, look at that. Nice Swahili. And if you park, parse that word and it becomes that. And oh, look at this. If we take that over here and diagram it that way, it will show this. And oh, wow. And he says, therefore, and then he goes all King James. Because I think in that time, if you went all King James, it was like, <gasps> He says, if thou art a learned man, then take care lest with all thy erudite, which means big learning, your scholar, with all thy scholarly reading, thou forgettest perchance to actually read God's word as a love letter. Everyone is dumber in the room now that you have explained that. Well, how do you think they respond? Oh, thanks, Jesus. Let's do lunch next week. That's not what happens. Jesus goes outside. They begin to oppose him fiercely, and they go outside, and they besiege him with questions, trying to catch him in something that he might say. And from this point on, it is war between the rulers, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and Jesus not, not the Romans. The Romans, no big deal. It's the religious people. They're the ones that killed Jesus. Now, that's kind of a walk through the passage. Let's do what we did last week. Let's take a, a freeze frame. Let's freeze the moment when Jesus is going off on the Pharisees and the teacher says, wait a minute. Do you know you're, you're including us in that? Are you trying to include us? What's going on in his mind? If we freeze that moment and say, what's happening right there? In other words, what made the scribe offended at Jesus' harsh words to the Pharisees? Because it wasn't their morality. I mean, the Pharisees thought they were better than other people more morally. And so when Jesus knew he was repulsed by him, you're, you're, you're unclean. That's not what's going on with the Pharisees. What's going on with the Pharisees is they thought they were smarter than Jesus. They thought they were right. I'm right. That's frightening. That's frightening. There are two kinds of arrogance. One kind of arrogance is you think you're better than people based on your performance and, and by the fact that you do things better. You're morally more clean than other people. Therefore, you're more right. Or excuse me, you're more, you're, you're better. You're religion. You follow it better. That's the Pharisees. The second way of being an arrogant SOB is, and I don't mean standard of beauty there, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the other way to do that is just you're always right. It's such a high degree of certainty you have on everything, everything, that everybody else around you is belittled. In other words, you disdain those who would dare disagree with you. That's arrogance. You might not think you're morally better, but you're still arrogant because you constantly look down upon people who do not agree with you. If you don't believe me, right now open up Facebook and just do the scroll thing. Especially when some major political thing happens. I just can't wait for presidential season. This is going to be... Man, I'm going to unplug Facebook for a while, however you do that. How do you unplug Facebook? Now, 
Danger of being right. I gotta, I gotta do something here. If you're a philosophy major, what I'm about to do is gonna highly offend you because I'm gonna go through about 2,000 years of philosophy in about a minute and a half. So I apologize about that ahead of time. Um, but I, I wanna talk a little bit about the ways of thinking. I wanna, I wanna move this to us now. So if you look at, uh, if you go back in history, you go back to uh, the guy who was the, fa- the father of what we'd call the modern way of thinking or what some have said is modernism or modernity, if you want to say it cool, uh, and, and that would be Descartes, or Descartes, as I like to say, right? And if you remember Descartes, those of you who took philosophy, if you remember that he uh, was really wrestling with understanding anything. He wasn't sure if he knew anything at all. And so he said, I doubt everything. My gosh, I'm not sure. Maybe we live in the matrix, right? Maybe it's just all a dream. What's going on? And so he said, the only thing I know for certain is that I doubt everything. And that's where the very famous phrase came out, I think, period, therefore I am, period. I exist because you don't exist if you don't actually think about things. And the only thing I know for certain that I'm actually thinking about is that I doubt everything. Okay? I know, you're like, what? Okay, just hang with me for a minute. So what that does then is Descartes then is actually a Christian. And he takes from that point, he tries to develop this system of proving God. Aquinas comes out of that. Um, uh, a lot of what we call modernity comes out of that. Science comes out of that. Because they would believe that there's absolute truth. It exists, but I just have to discover it, and I am the one. I have to be able to reproduce it in the lab. Then it doesn't become the friend of Christianity because you can't prove an invisible God. I can't prove it like that. I can't prove that the world was created by God. Oh, yeah? We'll go do it again in the laboratory. Can't do that. There's a lot of things I can't prove. I can't prove that my mother loves me. I know my mama loves me. Anyway, um, right? There's things I can't prove that way, so it doesn't become a friend. Along then comes postmodernity, which is, or postmodernism, is, is, it's been around a long time. It really got hipster in the 20s and 30s and things because they looked around all these modernists and says, you guys all disagree with each other. If there really was absolute truth, you'd all agree. You'd all study it, boom, you'd come to these conclusions. It can't exist like that. It doesn't exist like that. Absolute truth, at least the way you're describing, doesn't exist. And we have to look to the community. We have to say, what do we all kind of think here? And it just whatever's true for you is okay for you and, 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 and not for, for me. So uh, there's just too many things going on, so we're going to reject that. That will be called postmodernism. In other words, uh, moderns would say there is absolute truth and I just need to figure it out. Postmodernists would say, no, there's not absolute truth like that. Don't do that. And we're just in a journey together trying to figure it out. Now, the reality is, is neither one of those is our friend. Uh, both of those, in their hardest sense, neither one of them are our friends. Modernism, postmodernisms, not our friend. But let me propose to you something that is our friend. What I would call, and I lean more towards postmodernism. I would call, what I call, and I didn't quote this, or I, I, didn't, I didn't create this. Someone else, much smarter, better looking than me did. It's called soft postmodernism. What that is, is it says this. There is such a thing as absolute knowledge, absolute truth, excuse me. But there's no such thing as absolute knowledge. I, 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 no one person is omniperspectival. That's God. He's the only one who has absolute knowledge of the absolute truth. The rest of us have a close approximation to truth. We, if, the, if the truth was a, if the absolute truth is a dot, my whole life I'll kind of circle around it. And I know things pretty good, but not exactly. I, I, I can't have that kind of arrogance. Or to use uh, uh, a math term here, the asymptote. Huh? 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 It, it, what is an asymptote? Uh, it is a, where the, the curve comes down and it goes towards a line and it never touches it unless you were possibly able to get to infinity, it would touch it. Okay, but you can't do that, so it would. It gets very close. That's what this says. In other words, ignorance going up on the scale would be, so knowledge is increasing as you go down, and then time that I'm pursuing faith, or pursuing truth, matters of truth, allows me to get closer and closer. But guess what? I will never reach it in this life. Paul says this, right? Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, I see now dimly, but then I will see face to face. I see in part, but then I will see fully, Right? So, so what's this? Why is that important? Because if you don't have that, you're arrogant. If you don't have a, a system of saying, I, 
I'm pretty smart and I'm, I still don't hold all the keys to all knowledge. I need everybody else in this. Let me give you an, let me give you an example. In the church now, I'm gonna talk about the original OG guy here, the original Christian hipster is, is uh, John Calvin, right? Look at that beard, man. that's the original hipster, right? <laughs> now, um, Calvin uh, develops this, this system of thinking, it's in his book, his series of books called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's right around the time of the Reformation, in fact, he's called one of the reformers, even though it comes on the scene a little bit after Martin Luther, and so it's in the 1500s, and he develops this, this theology in order to simplify it after his death, not Luther, excuse me, not John Calvin, his followers develop it and call it TULIP. TULIP, uh, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. It's a way of trying to understand how God's sovereignty, the fact that God's in control of everything, and who we are as moral agents, how it fits together, okay? It's profound, all right? Now, um, it's also dangerous. I, I, I am a Calvinist. I, I, early in my Christian experience, studying some of these concepts, came to the conclusion that God is sovereign over all things, definitely. And yet, I found a lot of my Calvinist friends use this, what I call, beautiful theology to, um, basically as a club. Uh, and I don't mean, uh, you know, like He-Man Womanator's club. I mean like a club you'd whap someone over the head with, constantly. Anytime a person would open their mouth, say, that's wrong. It doesn't work like that. Let me give you a, when I was, uh, about two weeks ago, uh, I was, I knew this was coming, I saw this, and in my news feed, in, on my Facebook page, somebody had posted uh, this, um, uh, <laughs> it's written by Stephen Aldrich, who's a Calvinist, okay? He says, early warning signs of the adult onset Calvinism. I want to read this article to you, it's very short, let me read this to you. Approximately one out of every four Christians will encounter adult onset Calvinism, commonly known as AOC during their life, either personally or in someone close to them. It can be a scary thing to encounter, especially if you're not familiar with the symptoms. The person you once knew and loved is suddenly a completely different person. Don't panic, it gets better. To help you navigate the treacherous waters of AOC, I've listed the possible symptoms you may encounter. Here they are. A sudden urge to correct everything and everyone all the time about every possible thing. A growing conviction that every worship song you've ever sung is heretical and should be excised from the church catalog, including the Nicene Creed, doxology, and most of the Psalms. A strange and inexplicable ability to listen to 300 John Piper sermons in a single day. A burning passion to convert everyone, especially your extremely godly parents, all caps follows, who taught you the Bible to Calvinism. A growing level of arrogance that is directly inverse to the number of blog posts you write about humility. (laughs) Constant cravings for cigars and microbrews, even though they make you incredibly sick. Now that one you should keep. I'm I'm just saying. Anyway. Deep suspicion of anything that might cause the slightest bit of emotion in church, especially those awful worship songs noted above. Deep-seated cynicism toward anyone who doesn't take a hard stance on an issue including but not limited to free will, Calvinism, sports, coffee, the Trinity, capitalism, child schooling, and dating. Being so smug, you begin to panic that you won't be able, uh, you won't be able to adequately manifest all the smugness. <laughs> An unshakable convention that Tim Keller is too theologically soft. The ability to bring every conversation full circle to Romans chapter 9. Frustration that guys like Piper and Spruill don't draw line, more lines in the sand. Inevitably arriving at the conclusion that John Calvin was not that strong of a Calvinist. At least not as strong as you are. <laughs> and lastly, growing a beard. But not in a hipster way. This beard is way different from hipster beards because it tapers to a point somewhere between the nipples. Just like Calvin's beard did. If you or someone you know begins experiencing these symptoms, go to a pastor immediately. 
It won't make the slightest bit of difference because you were predestined to be a Calvinist. But... <laughs> but still, you should probably see a pastor. But don't worry, after five or six years, these symptoms will subside and you or your loved one will return to being a mostly normal person. Until then, sorry. <laughs> now, I am, I am a Calvinist. I, I believe in this. I was predestined to be a Calvinist. If you don't agree with it, you're predestined not to. So that's, that's fine. Let me walk you through two passes of giving this flower. Just as an example today, okay? Just as an example, how you can use truth as a club. First pass. There's tulip, okay? Let me hear, let me give this the way I've heard some, I'm going to do it real short, but, and I'm going to go through it uh, in every sentence is one of the letters. Okay, here we go. You're wicked. And you know what? There's nothing you can do about it. In fact, Jesus may not have even died for you. And if you do come to Jesus, it's because you're going to come kicking and screaming. And when you do come, the rest of your life is going to be nothing but hard work. Okay, who wants to become a Calvinist? Form a line. Okay, right here. <laughs> right? Let me give you a second pass. Notice all the letters are the same, but this time, do this with love. Do this with understanding that people need to understand what you're talking about, not just be beat over the head. Do this with the fact that, like most people I know, that go to seminary and even higher education, spend about three years wrestling through this, and they give people about 15 minutes to be convinced of it. Love, uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 1 Corinthians 8, right? Let's do the second try. The Bible doesn't start with total depravity. That's not where we start. We start with God made everything good and exactly the way it was. He created us with meaningful relationships and meaningful work and enjoying his beautiful creation. But because of our own will, we chose to bring sin into the world. And from that point on, nothing is the way it's going to be. And it's not going to be the way. It, it, it gets wrong in Genesis chapter 3. It's not going to be right again until Revelation chapter 21. Therefore, that means where I'm at right now, in every single area of my life and yours too, sin has tainted it. It doesn't mean that everything I do is as wicked as it could possibly be, but it means that every area is tainted by sin. And on my own, I can't fix that. And you can't fix it on your own. You need someone to do something for you. You need someone to go to a cross and die for you. In the time it happened, you were, people were looking at him and mocking him. He said, for those folks, there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus' death is for the entire world. But it's only affected for those who will believe. It's sufficient for all, but it only actually works for the believers. Otherwise, we'd be universalists and just think that all people. No, it's for those who trust Christ. That's what limited atonement means. Irresistible grace does not mean you come kicking and screaming. Irresistible grace means that God, in his ways and his mystery and involving everything uh, that he does in our lives and brings us through, opens our eyes up to see and to get an appetite for him. And for the first time in my life, I don't just come kicking and screaming. I see all of Baskin-Robbins 31 choices. And yet, I choose Rocky Road. Why? Because it's the best. Not because I come kicking and screaming after Rocky Road. I love Rocky Road. My eyes have been opened to the excellencies of Rocky Road. And I come freely, free choice to come to Rocky Road. That's irresistible grace. And perseverance of the saints does not mean it's a hard work the rest of my life. Perseverance of the saints really should be preservation of the saints, that the same God who started something in my life is never going to give up on me, ever. And because I'm still a moron, he still loves on me and carries me through all of life's difficulties like a loving shepherd. Now who wants to form a line for Calvinism? You see the difference? It's a huge difference. I've had people come down front and say, hey, Calvinism. And I do what I just did, and they go, well, not that. I'm like, I am John Calvin, okay? 
That is Calvinism. What you heard before is not. That's being a theological prick. And there's a lot of them out there. Pardon my French. But it's true. People just got to correct you and everything and put everybody else down. Now, how does the rest of the world look inside the church when they see us having these intramural squabbles about everything? Everything, and with venom. Not with, hey man, I, I disagree with you. Can we talk? It's not that. It's venom. And it's done online. It's done. What, is the, what does the rest of the world think? I'll tell you what the rest of the world thinks. Google the greatest religious joke. If you Google the greatest religious joke ever written, you'll get Emo Phillips. It has been voted the world's greatest joke. And I'm going to tell it to you. I'm going I'm to I'm read it because it's a long joke. Look at this joke, what it says. He says, and if you know Emo, he's really kind of strange. Well, I was walking across the bridge the other day, but I'm not going to do that because it's kind of creepy. Um, I was walking across a bridge the other day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he said. I said, well, there's so much to live for. He said, like what? Well, are you religious or atheist? He said, Religious. Me too. Are you Christian or a Buddhist? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. Are you Episcopal or Baptist? He said, Baptist. I said, wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? He said, Baptist Church of God. I said, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? He said, reformed Church Baptist of God. I said, me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and pushed him off. It's funny if it wasn't so sad, right? That's sad. That's sad that that's what we have. And that's what they look in and see. As people drive by, they go, look at those bunch of Christians. They think they're just always right. They're just debating with each other. Oh, just irrelevant. What if people drove by our red buildings here and said, you know what? There's those Christians and they disagree with me about a lot of things, about Jesus, about life, about God, morality, a lot of different things. But you know what? As I hang out with them, I've never in my life felt so loved, ever. I want to close today just by asking you, are you do you always need to be right? What if we did a radical thing, not only just with people outside, but people inside the church too? What if we did a radical thing? You might want to write this down. Listen. Shut your pie hole and listen. Something confuses me. To help me to understand why you would think that. You know, I may disagree, and I want to disagree, but I want to do it in a way that's helpful and loving. If we point to the Pharisees and the scribes and we say, I'm sure glad I'm not like that. I'm way better than those guys. We just outed ourselves. Let's pray together.